Get back, Jojo. Here.
by the time we got to Let It Be, we couldn't play the game anymore. We could see through each other, and therefore we felt uncomfortable because up till then we really believed intensely in what we're doing and the product we put out, and everything had to be just right, and we believed. Suddenly we didn't believe. Okay, well, I don't mind. I'll, I'll play, you know, whatever you want me to play. We couldn't do it anymore. It had come to a point where it was no longer creating magic. And the camera sort of being in the room with us made us aware of that, that it was a phony situation. And that was the end of it. Out of that frustration came the crazy idea to do a concert on the roof above the Apple offices. Of course, none of us had the vaguest idea that that would be the last time the Beatles would ever perform together. Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 and welcome to Paul or Nothing. It's widescreen podcasting. It's widescreen podcasting. This is the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Of course, I'm your host, Sailor Sam from Birmingham. And today, we're going to be picking up where we left off with my lovely discussion with the formidable Dylan Seavey. If you haven't already listened to that episode, I don't really know what you're doing here, but go back and check that out. Anyway, we're going to be wrapping up our talk on the original Michael Lindsay Hogg documentary and then moving on to the upcoming and oft-delayed The Beatles Get Back by Peter Jackson. Just a little update uh, and clarification from the last episode and possibly from the one you're about to hear. I think I mentioned or will mention that said Peter Jackson's reimagining of Let It Be had been delayed to August 21st, 2020. And it's actually much worse than that, folks. Uh, After going through a few articles, it appears Jackson's The Beatles Get Back at the time of this recording is actually being delayed to the farcical, far-flung future of the 27th of August, 2021. Now, this error was partly due to false info that I'd collected myself, but also I think I just couldn't and refused to believe it. But yeah, there you are, folks. More than a year to go. For fuck's sake. But before we get into any of that, we must quickly run through the housekeeping, though I am not so sure we'll make it under the 10-minute mark this time around. Apologies to friend of the show, Anthony Raduno. Anyway, time to crack on with the... Housekeeping! If you want to get in contact with the show, please drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Whether it's your own Paul McCartney story, whether it's some trivia you want to pick up on a review I've already done or warn me about an album in the future. Again, I love reading out any and all correspondence you wonderful folks send in. We actually have a couple of pieces of fan mail to read out though today. And our first is from a semi-regular correspondent, David Jackson. This was sent in after I uploaded the Glass Onion Swapcast, a toot and a sword in 74. And David says, Hi Sam, as always, a great show and fascinating discussion. And I will most certainly check out the Lennon podcast. I was at university in the Pipes of Peace album era, and I must admit the 80s were a dodgy time to be a Paul fan, with, in my view, the release of three of his worst albums, all coinciding with the competition of new wave bands. And sadly, he didn't quite recover till Flowers in the Dirt. 
You are right though, before John was murdered, Double Fantasy was indeed panned in the UK and was considered to be a massive disappointment. Our American friends have a different take on the solo Beatles though, and I reckon that's because punk and new wave never really happened there. Ringo, for example, is still seen as a credible act over there whilst being an irrelevance over here. Keep up the refreshing stuff slash opinions, Sam. Regards, David Jackson. Thank you so much for that lovely email there, David. I've got to say, one of the best things about being in the minority of Beatles podcasting, i.e. actually coming from the country where the Beatles were born, is that I'm rarely ever bored by the opinions and views of my transatlantic contemporaries. And with Mark Lewison unveiling all of the hidden mysteries and secrets of the Beatles story, sometimes you can worry that one day there won't be any new content to make. But the fact that there are so many dedicated fans out there all giving their own opinions and unique takes on the Beatles gives me hope for the future that this is just going to keep going forever. Also, as a little point of comparison about Ringo's relevance here in the UK, I actually would have thought all of the happy 80th birthday Ringo podcast episodes would have indeed been produced by Americans, but if you want to hear two dapper Irishmen discussing Ringo's self-titled album, then go and check out the latest episode of Nothing Is Real. It's really fucking good. And our other email today is from one Douglas Che, and he wrote in originally to simply ask which person I was in that CNN report on Yellow Submarine that I was featured in, that I've been plugging the last few episodes. But yeah, go and check that out also if you haven't already. The following correspondence, though, is after Douglas found me in said video clip, and I didn't really expect where he was going to go here, Um, though he does start off very well, folks. Um, Take note. Douglas begins, Oh Sam, you handsome devil. I also plugged the podcast on a Beatles board. Douglas is actually referring here to a thread on the Steve Hoffman forums where people were asking for Beatle podcast recommendations. Of course, all the usual suspects were, were there, but thank you, Doug, for putting the word out about Paul or nothing. He continues, Meanwhile, could I ask your opinion on something? I wrote a post about Frozen Jap that was immediately removed from the SteveHoffman.com forums for violating their terms. What do you think of it? And he actually puts the whole article here. It reads, McCartney's racist titled song, Frozen Jap. Frozen Jap. As an Asian American, it has always hurt that he chose to title his song by that name. Using the word Jap as a substitute for Japanese has been considered an offensive slur since the 40s. In 1980, McCartney defended the use of the word in the title of one of his songs by saying it had become part of the overall vernacular and it was no longer offensive. Why then were the Japanese copies of McCartney 2 renamed Frozen Japanese? It was offensive then and offensive today. He then goes on to quote from the Huffington Post, For decades, the Japanese American Citizens League, the JACL, has worked to expunge expunge the term Jap from American speech, signs, names, advertisements, you name it. Why? Jap has been a racial pejorative that has long been viewed by the community as a word associated with civil rights injustices, discrimination, hate crimes and persecution that span over a century. It's a word that was flaunted in anti-Japanese persecution during World War II and in the yellow Jim Crow environment of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. 
It was a word hurled at Japanese Americans as they were forcibly removed from their homes by armed soldiers and sent to remote prisons in 1942 by a white supremacist who bombed the Sacramento and by a white supremacist who bombed the Sacramento office of the JACL in 1993. It was a word used by politicians as they passed laws to deny citizenship, deny property ownership, deny the right to marry an American citizen, and create segregated schools. Let me be clear, Jap is hate speech. Jap is a repugnant reminder of anti-Asian racism and of episodes that represent America at its worst. We as Americans should aspire to the ideals of a democratic nation, and those who choose to revert to usage of Jap must understand the burden of that word. Anyway, Sam, I'm looking forward to hearing your response on this particular issue. I'm currently listening to your McCartney 2 podcast right now. I remember buying it when it first came out and loving it, even though there are a few dud tracks. I like that you aren't afraid to share your opinions about tracks that you don't like too, either on this album or other albums. I know some other podcasts where they gush about absolutely everything. I hope you're having a gentle week, and thanks for the many hours of entertainment. I look forward to listening to the new episode. All the best, Douglas. Right. First things first, Douglas, thank you for that wonderfully written email. I was so fascinated by that. And going back to David Jackson's email, I'm just so excited to have a diverse a, a range of views when it comes to the Beatles, as it's this exact kind of talk that's going to keep this community going and alive. Now, I'm not going to read out all of mine and Douglas's entire back and forth correspondence, as it carried over, uh, over onto several days, actually. Though I still felt, especially during these particularly troublesome times, that it was a subject worth addressing, you know, as much as a straight, cisgendered white man such as myself can do. I mean, do I like the fact that Paul uses the slur on the rear cover of one of my favourite albums of his? No. Do I think it was intended with a grand overarching malice? Of course not. Now, folks, of course, I have to tread carefully here because I don't want to sound like some sort of white knight apologist here because that's really not the position I'm taking here though I am trying to be as objective as possible and not just leap on cancel culture here you know I don't want McCartney 2 to be pulled off shelves or anything like that of course in some circles yes in the 1980s Jap would still have been a, a horrendous racial slur but perhaps Douglas was coming at this from more the American perspective. I know here in the UK there was a, a real resentment against the Japanese culture purely because of our interactions during World War II. There weren't many, if at all, Japanese citizens in the UK at that time. So there was still a sense of the other and the outsider, as it were. Of course, as well, cultural and racial sensitivity was not what it is today. And there is that quote where Paul was essentially saying that he didn't think he was as offensive as other particularly inflammatory racial slurs used for other peoples within other varied ethnic minority backgrounds. Now, does Paul come across as a little tone deaf here and blatantly insensitive? Yes, of course he does. But I also know that he had just come out of jail after his Japanese bust and he was probably trying to offend the Japanese. Now, could he have done it in a more inventive and less racially charged way? Yes, of course he could. Uh, I'm not saying mocking people's cultures is a good thing, but it's, you know, it's a bit more uh, of an open season, as it were. Like, he could have taken the mick out of 
kimonos, kabuki, kaiju movies, astro boy, anime, samurai. He could have made any sort of joke like about you know those typical iconic Japanese tent poles without having to resort to that kind of language. Now, again, I don't want McCartney 2 pulled off shelves, though if it was pulled off shelves, it would make my original copy a little bit more value. But, and when I first wrote back to Douglas, I, I actually assumed that it wasn't just the Japanese editions that changed the title to Frozen Japanese, but no, it is just the Japanese issues. So I reckon the best way to put this whole thing to bed would just be to retitle it to Frozen Japanese on all future releases and all streaming services effective immediately. Paul doesn't need to do a protracted apology or anything like that. Let's just change the title and move on. And of course, folks, this is a very interesting part of the Paul McCartney discourse, and I would love to hear all of your opinions on it too. What do you think about mine and Douglas's opinions on McCartney 2 and Frozen Jap slash Frozen Japanese? Please email in your thoughts at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. If you want to get in contact with the show more constantly and for a bit more fun and levity, check out our Twitter page where I post all sorts of nonsense and polls and interact with you more directly. That is at McCartneypod. Check out our blog, which is www.paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. There are two brand new articles up there now. One on Paul McCartney's two-part medley-type songs, you know, where I'm going to go through everything from I've Got a Feeling to Winter Rose, Love Awake, Band on the Run, and the Abbey Road medley. Hope you enjoyed that one. And there is our latest article, which is my single-disc edition of Egypt Station, But yeah, you can probably guess the nature of that article. I'm going to slim down Egypt Station from a bloated double album to hopefully what will be quite a slender and attractive new proposition. Of course, the Facebook page is now back up as well. Please join us on our Facebook page. It's kind of like the Twitter, but for people who prefer using Facebook. And if my demographics tell me anything, a lot of you prefer using Facebook based on your age range. But anyway, yeah, check out our Facebook page, simply by typing in Paul McCartney Podcast or Paul or Nothing. If you want to give back to the show, if you're enjoying what I've been doing, but you don't have the cash to spare, then there is a really fast, easy, and incredibly helpful way that you can give back to the show. Just leave us a five-star review, whether you're on iTunes, Podbean, Podomatic, Acast, whatever all of these new streaming services are for podcasts. If you could scroll to the bottom, give us a five-star review, maybe even write something particularly nice about the show. Hey, if you could do that, it really boosts us up in the algorithms, gives us that exposure, and introduces us to a whole new world of Beatle and Paul McCartney fans. But also, I do this for free, folks. There are no ads. If you want to help keep the lights running, if you want to help support the show directly, if you want to invest in Paul or nothing, and hey, if you want to give me enough money so that I don't have to work in a COVID-19 infected pub, then please check out our Patreon page, links down below. Patreon is a way that you can help support independent content creators like myself by simply chucking a few quid or a few dollars down the internet every month to help the show grow and expand in new and exciting ways. And you know what? Since every other podcast with a Patreon page reads out all of their patrons, I think I may as well do the same. So, huge shout out to Matt Phillips, the OG, Warren Butson, you're always there on Twitter. Hey there, my friend. 
Tony Vosile, my friend on Facebook, Robert A. Carbelli, then we come across a name written in a language that I can't decipher, but her name is Lasgirl. Are you at gmail.com? Thank you, Lasgirl. We've got Louis A. DeLonardo, who's written into the show before, Sam Hode, Katrina S., Cheryl McCoy, and the man simply known as Stuart Cook. Thank you all for supporting this poxy little podcast. And hey, let's see where the, all of this goes. But now that all of this horrendously shameless plugging has come to an end, we've done the admin. Let us leap headfirst back into my chat with Dylan Seavey and be prepared to see that name on the podcast again in the future, folks, because I had a blast speaking with this guy. Right, let's cut back to the feed. Then, 26 minutes into the fucking movie, we actually get the proper first real sit-down conversation. That's more than 30 seconds. And you know what, Dylan? I'm quite upset that I don't remember this because it's probably the most insightful conversation in the entire movie. It's Paul and John mostly discussing... Discussing Maharishi, their relationship with Maharishi, and I don't know. I kind of feel like the Beatles were always moving so far forward so quickly that they never even had a chance to reflect on their past publicly. Like you never hear someone in '69 going, "What do you think about Dizzy Miss Lizzie?" Like they don't have time to ask that kind of rubbish. <laughs> so to hear Paul say, "You know, we weren't that honest around Maharishi, and John, you were a bit dishonest around him. We weren't really being ourselves. It was a bit like school." That is that is A class weapons grade Beatles <laughs> material. It was so insightful. And that bit where like Paul's like, you know, John, you thought you could like go away and get the answers. And John's like, Yeah, I thought he'd slip me the real answers. Love that stuff. It's the most humanizing thing in the movie. They're people. Love it. Yeah. And and they had these conversations all the time during these sessions. And they were talking about what they saw on television, what they were reading in the newspapers, what they were hearing on the radio. This is the only scene in the movie where we even get a glimpse of that. And once again, the lack of narrative and context doesn't inform the audience of this whatsoever. You know, it's, it's just so unfortunate. I, I agree mm-hmm. with you. This, this is one of the more interesting scenes in the movie because of that. Especially since George is suspiciously quiet during this whole time. <laughs> You know what, maybe you would have learnt more from Maharishi if you fucking took your finger out your ass. You know, you, you can picture George in his bitter, angry way, just going, oh, none of you gave him a chance, you know. <laughs> so so, what, so George, what if you had George sex with everyone? Never, George was never that dour. I don't know why you would ever assume such a thing. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's not like he wrote Taxman or anything, you know. No, of course not. Then we get a rendition of what might... Okay, it's either this song or uh, Take Good Care of My Baby. It's my favourite early Beatles set cover. And we get to hear... Mm. Which... Look, it's difficult not to be transfixed on Paul like he's some sort of Medusa when he's doing his kind of... Vocal, and but <laughs> something my mom pointed out to me when we were both watching the Hey Jude music video on the David Frost show. Just look at the way John and Paul look at each other. You never see John and Yoko or Paul and Linda look at each other with anywhere near that kind of unconditional love. It's like it really is brotherly. They're beaming, and yeah. it's for approval, for timing, for nostalgia, for giggles, and. 
stuff like this really contrasts the whole these were dour sessions and we're going to get into this later folks we're going to say the phrase we're going to get into this later a lot in this episode because there's a lot to cover but the whole peter jackson revisionist history thing i don't think this film is so dour that it needed an a revisionist overhaul so much as it needed just a restructuring of the footage and an and addition of context like you say shots of where john and paul are looking at each other you know it it it's more arousing than blue is the warmest color you know this is real passion coming from these guys eyes and they're and they're playing the old standards they're having a blast they're not worrying about who's writing the new solo they're just playing the songs like they did back in hamburg and again if this was an all retro concert where they played their old set it would have been a far smoother experience in my opinion yeah well, and it should be mentioned too that by this point in the film, they're at Apple, so they've they've changed scenery. You can tell that the mood is just better overall once that they're there. And I think that these scenes aren't remembered as much because for some reason, I almost feel like people don't want to remember them, which makes no sense to me. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to imply that these sessions were secretly really great and Things were like this all the time, but even if we walk away from this documentary with the feeling that it was miserable, you know, we should be able to remember these good times equally because you're right. That relationship between John and Paul is the most beautiful thing in the world for a mm -hmm. Beatles fan, and it does need to be cherished a lot more. I, I completely agree with you. Then we get a scene of you know what? We've just gone from one fantastic scene. We've got another one here. Another great editing <laughs> choice. We're going to keep it positive. Boom, 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 boom. I'd like to be. Boom, 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 boom. It, it's it's the George and Ringo composing Octopus's Garden scene. It's got a few alternate lyrics. You know, it would be nice in paradise. Glad they cut that line. Um, but you know what? <laughs> It's 10 seconds without Paul and John. It's the two underdogs working together. And, like, just just to hear really banal conversations, like, no, I think you should use A7 rather than a G. That, for me, is as exciting as the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan, you know? <laughs> yeah, this, this is a great scene. And then when John comes in, too, on the drums, even if Yoko has to be back there with him for <laughs> God knows whatever reason. You know, yeah, just to have these scenes to show, again, this this wasn't all terrible. And it is nice that Ringo gets that um, that spotlight. And uh, I mean, I think Octopus's Garden is a great song. And getting to see a little bit of these origins, I mean, that's... I It's interesting that they did choose to to put it in this film because obviously these sessions weren't just the songs that ended up on mm -hmm. um, let it be. I mean, almost every song on Abbey road is introduced at one point or another with the exception, I think of three, maybe four. Um, yeah. But, but I was, I was glad that they chose especially to put this one in there because, you know, you see earlier in the film, how, miserable all the others are trying to work on Maxwell and getting to see the joy <laughs> on everyone's faces. You know, when Ringo has his song and, and George, George perks up, George is happy to help. George wants to help. John wants to be involved. 
you know, Paul walks in and, and, and he's happy with what's going on. It's, it's definitely, this is probably my favorite scene in the whole film because of all of that. You know what? It might be the happiest point in the film, certainly, because we get a cameo from George Martin, who seems to be mm-hmm. really interested in what Ringo's working on. He's like, oh, my God, R- Ringo, you've written your first number eight hit, you know. Uh, <laughs> hey, and, now, he had you know, a number one before John did. Let's put some respect on his name. Oh, I know. And like, th- there's that great interview when like someone says, you know, Ringo got the first number one above you, Paul. And, like you see Paul die inside slightly a little <laughs> bit. Because, dude, all of my best friends are virtuoso guitarists, drummers and bassists. And I'm a guy who got Beatles rock band and can keep in time. Uh, basically, the only reason I can drum is because one of my best friends got expelled from school for smoking weed at school. So I, I had to join the school band. And whenever I'm playing with my friends, I just look at them and go, I physically don't know how you've had the time in your life <laughs> to get that good. And if I was Ringo and I got a number one for any of those guys, I think I would just rub it in their face every opportunity I would have. <laughs> like even like even if Ringo was there at George's funeral, go, you know what, I love George. He was like a little brother to me. And I got a number one before he did. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Good night. <laughs> you know, that's how that's how I felt that shit. You know. Well, you know, I think that really speaks to your high character, Sam. Yes, of course. Speaking of positivity, um, like you say, Paul arrives with the kids, and seeing little Heather was a nice little yes, little uh, so Easter egg. Yeah. Oh God, Ringo playing with her, and and there's. There's audio, too, of John having fun with her. And that's the thing, you know, the the relationship between John and Linda was is is not talked about all that much. But he was as threatened by Linda, if not more threatened by Linda than Paul was Mm -hmm. with Yoko. And I really so knowing all of that and knowing that he was able to to put on a happy face and, and, and fool around with her, especially knowing that, you know, he, he wasn't always there as much as he, I don't want to say should have, but obviously his relationship with Julian was what it was. And so for him to have a little bit of humility there, I I wish that that was in the film too, because it's so, so great when she shows up, It, it really does add some necessary brightness. No, I mean, You've almost got more of a duty to be a good uncle than you've got to be a good friend, you know? Sure. That's a good way to look at it. Don't fuck with the kids. Leave them out of it, you know? The Beatles were bastards, but I always liked Heather, you know? That's how you should really (laughs) approach all of it. Following on, we get another run-through of a classic Beatles cover. We get, you really got a hold on me. Again, whenever they cover these standards, the tensions are magically lifted all of a sudden. Almost as if, like... Mm. There's no ego in the room, weirdly. And it's a three-way lead vocal, which, I mean, as much as I like Babies in Black, there's rare three-way vocals on songs like If I Fell. That, for me, is real peak Beatles. People talk about genius clusters all the time and the the odds of these three guys with voices that match coming coming together. I don't want to think about those odds because it might depress me for the future of music. (laughs) No, you can you can really see them 
coming into their own here. Like they are far beyond some of the shoddy run throughs of other songs that they were doing earlier in these sessions. It's a nice introduction to Billy Preston too, who of course is given. We need some narration of Billy Preston as well. Yeah, we are we are just expected to know who this random guy playing the organ is. Uh, <laughs> Oh man, it's it's a great run through of that song, and and that's one of my favorite early Beatles covers as well. Percent uh, the she and him version is just pants compared to the Beatles run through. Next up, uh, we get a uh, shout out to Zoe Deschanel if she ever wants to hit me up. Next up, we get uh, Paul <laughs> dick, dicking about a bit with uh, Let It Be in the Long and Winding Road. Hopefully, they don't reappear at the end of the documentary or anything like that. Um, oh, see, the bossa nova long and winding road is perfect. Ringo's facial expression is <laughs> my favorite facial expression that's ever been made. And it's it's nice to see, you know, Paul Paul could be dictatorial, Paul could be overbearing, but he had a sense of humor. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's nice to know cuz I mean, again, even though I haven't listened to all the Nagra reels, I there's so many instances of him during these sessions just not he never stops playing this song he's just so all about this song and everyone was probably sick of it so it's nice i think of him to have a little bit of um self-awareness here i guess and and have a little fun with it and you you almost kind of see at one point george has that look on his face of i hate this what's going on but like oh wait no we're having fun and he gets into it, you know. It's yeah. that. That's another, I think, one of the best scenes in the movie here. Dylan, I am not a musician. I'm a friend of musicians, but the feeling of playing with your friends and you nail a song, it is a transcendent feeling. Like there's nothing better. When COVID happened, my friend Ryan said, "Sam, just learn Brian Wilson note for note perfect, and we will play it." <laughs> Uh, Brian Wilson by the Bare Naked Ladies, not the person. That's what I assumed. Much easier task than learning all of Brian Wilson's parts from the Beach Boys catalog. Yes, uh, it would be difficult to fake schizophrenia mid-jam session. (laughs) (laughs) Again, when we started playing Brian Wilson, or when we started playing Be My Yoko Ono was another one we actually started playing, actually, which was really fun as well. Uh, Bare Naked Ladies are huge Beatles fans. Massive shout-out to my Canadian brothers. (laughs) After that, like, this sounds so, like, hyperbolous, but I got how fun it was just for them to chill out and play without pressure. And maybe if there wasn't the the overbearing sword of Damocles of it, you know, we've got to produce an album at the end of all of this, maybe mm-hmm. there wouldn't have been the, the tension again. But let's not get too focused on what ifs. We move forward to a version of Shake, Rattle and Roll. We get Lordy, mm-hmm. Claudy and Kansas City two songs that Paul would later do on the Chobber album. It's not called Back in the SSR, it's called Chobber, and we all know it. Uh, it's actually called Snova the SSSR. Oh, God. I knew you would impute his <laughs> pocket. <I'm... laughs> well, again, have you seen our president? Hey-o. hey Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, this, uh, this sequence in the film, I mean, shake, rattle, and roll, that sounds like fucking rock and roll. Like, <laughs> this is fa- same with Kansas City. They're really, really coming together here. They are 
sounding like a band. You can see how they get to sounding as good as they do on the rooftop here. I mean, this is great, great stuff. Then we come on to a scene that you mentioned earlier. We come to the extended Dig It segment, which, you know what? When you listen to it in full, it's less of a Lennon solo track and it's more accurately portrayed as a group jam. And you know what, Dylan, this dig it part, many realize that for every person that says this documentary skewed towards Paul, um, I kind of want to throw it back in their face that, you know, despite the fact that, you know, he has the most original compositions on the track listing, the actual album itself in terms of production is skewed against Paul. And that kind of balances it out rather fairly. What's your hot take on that opinion? I My hot take is that I don't understand why you think that. How how is this album skewed against Paul? The Phil Spectorness of it, the, the long and winding road dubs and stuff like that. I feel like that is not what Paul wanted. He wrote very stern letters specifically to that song. But, you know, I'm not saying the entire album, but there are elements of it that are not what Paul wanted. But you never hear Lennon going... Spectre didn't do Across the Universe the way I wanted it. Or you don't hear George go, oh, you know what? Spectre ruined for you, Blue. Whereas, Hmm. you know. Well, yeah, but John was never really happy with Across the Universe. He didn't make as much of a stink about it as Paul did with Long and Winding Road. But I, I could be wrong, but I think that's why he contributed to Bowie's cover of it in 75, was it? 74, 75? So, I, uh, I don't know. I th- This is the first conspiracy theory of yours that I am actively uh, going up against. Despite, despite the long and winding road, Paul still has the other major song in Let It Be, the title track of Let It Be, Two of Us. I've got a feeling. Get, Get back. back. Long, I, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so, call him bullshit on that one, Sam. Well, I'm going to leap forward a bit. I'll go back briefly. But you know what, Dylan? The macro focus of this, it's purely down to the fact that Lennon brought fuck all to these sessions, isn't it? <laughs> he like, look, look, if I was off my head on smack, I couldn't write you know, let it be, can run it when I'm not on smack. But Johnny's just hampering himself at every turn. Like, if he'd have brought a come together to these sessions, you know, that would actually stay on the album. Obviously, Don't Let Me Down didn't go on the album for some reason. But hmm. if he if he put half the effort he put into the white album, Paul would gladly, st- he would gladly step back. Paul wants John to not be dominant, but to be a 40-40 split with, you know, uh, George and Ringo having 10 each. He would love John to come to these sessions with a load of songs, as long as they're not cold turkey and what's the new Mary Jane. And I just I just wish John would pull his finger out and like being part of the Beatles. Just just enjoy your hand, John, please. Well, I, I don't I don't necessarily disagree with you, but I think the flaw or the counter argument to that is that this is all being viewed through the scope of the Beatles being John and Paul's band. We view it as Paul had to be this way. Paul had to do this because John was not. Mm -hmm. And 
while that makes sense, John and Paul were not the only two members of the Beatles. And they, they as we've said before, the I, I know, and I didn't mean to drop such a bombshell towards the tail end of the podcast, but here we are. Um, but, but as it stands, yes, John was in that position, but this is all the more reason why George has every right to be upset with the way that he was being perceived. Because Paul had it in his head, well, John isn't going to contribute what I'm going to contribute, so I have to take on this role, rather than John's not doing this, but George is. You know, he didn't even take the time to think, oh, George has just as many songs as I do, and maybe he just didn't like, he didn't like those songs as much, or, or whether or not he even likes them or not, it was more just a matter of perception, like how... How is Paul able to be in a band with this guy for 10 years where he is, you know, eventually writing songs, but not to the same degree? But how is he able to view him as an equal contributor when he just hasn't been that up until this point? And I'm not saying that's right, but I can understand psychologically why that would be there. So I think that that is the inherent flaw with this argument is everyone. And and I get, of course, we have to talk about the John and Paul connection because you know, so so much of the Beatles is Lennon mm-hmm. and McCartney. It's everything that those guys wrote together or separate. That was the basis uh, for which that band was was built. Um, but at this time, it was changing. Paul wasn't able to fully recognize that. That's what created the bigger issue. So I don't know. I guess that's what I would say to that. Yeah, you know when you hear Paul say, you know, as I mentioned, we're four sides of a square. He should have said, I liken us to four sides of a rhombus. (laughs) A very unequilateral square. You don't get rhombus talk on other podcasts, folks. Yeah, you're never going to hear rhombus on uh, something about the Beatles, are you? Uh, (laughs) Rhombus talk. I'm going to have that on my tombstone. Because, like, from one person's opinion... You can see George's withholding the goods. He's not giving these best songs. He's just putting For You Blue and Old Brown Shoe. But he's just not allowed to put these songs on the album. All things things Must Pass would have been perfect for this one. Like opening side two with All Things Must Pass, with that same Phil Spector production that he probably would have brought regardless of whether it was that year or the next year, you know? Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, he was, there were some songs that he had saved up in his back pocket, but he was showing them All Things Must Pass. He was showing them Let It Down. He was showing them Hear Me, Lord. He'd been showing them Isn't It a Pity since 1966. I mean, so, (laughs) so it definitely is a big issue of intrapersonal perception that created or helped to create this, this rift, um, but, you know, even even for Paul, he fell into the trap that so many people do, which is viewing things almost solely through the scope of Lennon-McCartney. Mm-hmm. And for him being the half of that pair that was able to put forth the work that he did, he, that's what he felt he had to do. And he, and he could not accept or was not willing to accept that that's mm-hmm. where George was. Or he, or he just couldn't see. I'm, and I'm not trying to paint Paul as a bad guy, or 
I don't even want to say wrong because, you know, even if you can you can make the argument that he was wrong for being able to do that. But I understand even if I don't agree with it. I mean, it's it's all hindsight at this point. You know, we we are like you said, everyone is so quick to try to, um, you know, therapize and and diagnose mm. all of these things. But we have 50 years worth of history and hindsight, these guys were living through it in the moment. And all of us make decisions and do things we're not proud of in the moment. I, I don't think that Paul is certainly proud of everything that he did or said or the way he went about everything. And and certainly uh, history shows that in the aftermath of these sessions, as 1969 went on, he made the right calls. He made the right call in not wanting to be a part of Alan Klein. He made, he made the right call in you know, organizing a lot of the things that he did for Abbey Road. Mm -hmm. It just so happens to be that some of the moves he made during these sessions uh, ended up maybe not being the best decision for his relationship with George, for the Mm -hmm. project in general. And you can see that in the final product that is this project, the film and the album. Right. Just jumping back slightly into chronological order, we have a little chat between John and Paul about the idea of doing a film in the first place. Should have been the first scene, really, when you think about it. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, saying, I don't want to do another Hard Day's Night or a help. They speak about George in the third person a lot in this scene. He's left the band, folks. Um, <laughs> we don't we don't get that clue whatsoever. Then and It's interesting, too, because Paul, Paul is so manic and John seems so disinterested. It's a really, it's a really interesting dynamic between them in that scene. You just, you look at Paul and you think, God, he just wants John to care. And you just look at John and think he just wants Paul not to care. And it's, there's no middle ground for them to ever meet here. And, that, and, and you know, the dramatic irony is so much a part of drama in cinema. And, you know, this film is almost more important now than it ever was in 69, 70 because of what we know and because of all the books and the context that has been released. And of course, that only fuels the uh, Freudian uh, analysis of this film. Then, Dylan, we come to what I call the nadir of this film, which is when we get three Paul McCartney music videos in this in these flat, wide angles we get the acoustic version of Two of Us, we get Let It Be, and The Long and Winding Road. And I have to capitulate here. This is where it becomes the Paul show. Uh, I'm a Paul guy. This is a Paul podcast. But Christ, can we dial it back a little bit, please? Come on. Can we not have John yeah. doing an early version of Across the Universe? Obviously, he's not going to do Across the Universe on the rooftop. No one will hear it. They totally could have put it in place of two of us here. We didn't need two of us. It should have been Let It Be, Across the Universe, then The Long and Winding Road. I think that would have made it much more balanced. And I think what's what's even more damning, you know, for, for the argument that this is the Paul show is that for the first whatever verse or verse and a half of two of us, what is the shot? John is not even on the cam- in the camera shot. George is sitting down, Ringo's off in the distance, and there is Paul, you know? And it's just sort of like, I love this song, I love this performance, but it's not doing any favors to try to paint it in a light other than the Paul McCartney show when literally Paul is the only thing in focus here. And 
You know, I just, I, you don't see the band together. I want to see them all together. It's like a Wings performance, isn't it? You know, it's a, mm. uh, and then, you know, Let It Be and Long and Morning Road have these protracted shots of Paul's face. And like, I can't imagine that in HD on IMAX, like 800 feet tall and 7,000 feet wide. <laughs> and like, my God, that's the biggest head I've ever seen. Man. Yeah, it really is the part of the movie where you just have to say, look, if you believe that this is the conspiracy, that this was the Paul project, I understand how you came to that conclusion. If you can't empathise with that opinion, you're not paying attention to how little the other three are on screen. Oh, yeah, because, you know, obviously the argument against it is that the film as a whole, you can argue, makes doesn't make Paul look that great. But then... The other argument for it in this, other than what you just said, is that now he's singing Let It Be. And there's no way to argue that the song isn't brilliant, you know? And John wasn't writing songs like this at, at that moment in time. So, yeah, this this is a huge piece of evidence uh, in favor of that conspiracy. Because, like, oh, well, here's, after all this, check it out. Here's a brilliant <laughs> song that I've written, and uh, go fuck yourself. Yeah. You can imagine, I'm not saying that this conversation ever took place, but if you're making my dream Netflix drama of the Beatles' lives, you know, once they've finished filming The Crown and they've got a few quid spare, uh, if Netflix creates The Beatles' show, there will be a scene where, where Paul goes, look, John, if you're not going to bring anything to these sessions... I'm going to have to do something because we need to make a movie. And that's what Paul did. He created three iconic songs that everyone loves. And if you're not overthinking it like me, you're probably really going to enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. And for the long and winding road, too. Uh, I've always wondered if people thought about it at the time. Like, there's the despectorized version. It wasn't like we haven't heard it. It's right there in the movie. I've, al- I've always been kind of interested to know what people in general kind of thought about that at the time. Obviously, we'll have to uh, ask Richard Hewson if I ever get him on the show at some point. <laughs> Keep trying for it. Ewan, hit up uh, Richard Hewson for me if, you, if, if, if you're listening. No, Owen, Owen, not Ewan. I may have got that wrong on purpose just to annoy you. Then we come to the rooftop concert. I'm sure some of you may have heard about it in passing at some point in your Beatles fandom. It's not the entire rooftop concert. The new Peter Jackson film has stated emphatically that we will get the full 42-minute concert. Um, not sure how much that's going to eat into the runtime of the entire movie, if that's going to cut things out or anything. Um, there were many uh, performances of, uh, multiple performances of the same song. We get like three of Get Back and two Digger Ponies, mm. blah, blah, blah. Uh, no, no, not too good, but we, we get two I've Got a Feelings. Of course, this is all footage from the January 30th, 1969. It must have been absolutely fucking freezing up there. And <laughs> yet, despite that, it's iconic. It's dynamically uh, brilliant as a visual. The Beatles' vocals and instrumental performances are top-notch. It's recorded brilliantly. It's mixed brilliantly. It's shot brilliantly. And best of all, bar a few snotty dickheads on the ground floor... The public are loving it. They are loving every second. There's one shot of a woman like walking away from from the concert. I'm like, turn around. Where are you going? 
What are you doing? Yeah. And and the bloke who looks like the least likely candidate for a Beatle fan, he looks like Andy Cap, a generic British working class bloke on on his way to the factory. And he's like, yeah, you know, the Beatles have got a good sound, they've got good voices, really good lads, and I, I like it. And I'm like, that's the coolest dude in this movie. I love him. Love that bloke. Yeah, the... The American in me can't understand a goddamn <laughs> word that he's saying, uh, aside from the occasional, like, oh, they've got good voices. But I like it that way. I love that he's into it. It's great. Yeah, really, for me, um, I think my only gripe with this is that I, I definitely wish we saw more of the setup. And again, like I touched, touched on earlier, more conversations like why are we here how did they come to this conclusion when did they come to this conclusion you know it so that's i would have liked to see more of that but as far as the music itself i mean that first version of get back is so killer and that that camera shot panning out to show the full scope of where they are and what they're doing is is great such a raw rock and roll version of that song great guitar from john great paul vocals getting to hear george's harmony and don't let me down is perfect and and kind of like you touched upon there john and paul looking at each other in that song is just so heartwarming i mean what what a what a great performance i mean it's it's every everything that everyone talks it up to be for me personally Blue cat, blue, blue, blue. Yes, she does. <laughs> so good. So good. Oh, so good. Look, okay, Dylan. Uh, and and Top. Ringo is so into it too. I mean, see, like when they're playing, I've got a feeling, which is just a phenomenal performance. Like he is just thrashing away. One after nine oh nine is also so rock and roll. Like they, they sound like a real band again and they don't sound like that at the early points in the film it's almost surprising how poor they sound at some earlier points in the film and and then you realize you're like oh yeah these guys were the greatest band that ever lived weren't they when the chips were down when it really came you know when push came to shove they could pull that finger out of the proverbial bottom they really could (laughs) Uh, look, Dylan, and tough, Chip, tough question you for you. You mean the hit American drama series from the 70s. With, um, oh, what's his name? The guy on the motorbike. Oh, that's going to bug me now. Because you always see him at the end of every episode of Scrubs going, I have a beautiful time. Yeah, that guy. Oh, that's going to bug me now. Eric Estrada. Eric, I was going to say Emilio Estevez. I know that's Charlie Sheen's brother. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Dylan, tough question, my friend. If you could go back Ooh. and witness a single Beatles live performance, would it be the rooftop gig? Probably not. Okay. Candlestick Park? I think if I, Cavern? If, I, if I had a gun to my head, I would choose the first show at the Cavern that Ringo played. And, that, and that's a really tough question. I mean, I would have loved to be there in D.C. in February 64. Yeah, I would have loved to be at Shea in Candlestick. I would love to be at the rooftop. I would love to be in Hamburg. And uh, I I got to go to Hamburg last summer while I was on tour. And um, I got to go down to the Strip and see the Indra and, and all those places. And 
And then in the middle of our set, I got to sing a little uh, "Come Give Me a Dying a Hand," which was great. And oh. yeah, and I wish I wish I could have I wish I could have seen those shows. But if I had to choose one, yeah, first Cavern show with Ringo. Just because I'm a massive fan of Beatles rock band, it's got to be Bodakan for me. Just because I want to hear George mm. swear. If I fucking needed someone, I know he says it. I can see him miming it in the audience. And I want to be there with, with like an iPhone speaker, just like holding it out. Like, come on, George, swear for Sam. Come on. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of great choices. I mean, rooftop. I mean, who wouldn't want to see the rooftop? Of course I would. I just, I don't know if it's my number one. Am I what allowed to choose Pepperland? Like, can I choose Pepperland as a gig, you know, when they're performing Sergeant Pepper against the Blue Meanies? Like, that's that was a good gig. Didn't happen in reality, but it was a good gig. Yeah, I think you, I, I honestly think with some high grade psychedelics, you can make that happen this afternoon. But that's really your call at the end of the day. I do have a menacing glove in this room, but <laughs> that's, that's more my own private thing that I don't want to talk about right now. Dylan, were there any songs that they were rehearsing during these sessions that you would have liked to have heard them perform on the roof? Ooh. Even though John didn't contribute to it, I think I Me Mine would have been great. You know, I think that is a really, really cool song. Um, That, that's really the only one I can think of. I think all the songs that were appropriate for the rooftop, I, I, I don't know that let it be your long and winding road would have been appropriate for that particular show. I, th- I think I mean, my I'm not lugging that piano up those stairs, son. <laughs> I'm not getting that up there. I um, mean, is, is there really another choice? I, I guess for you, blue also, you know, one, one of the George songs, but I well, mean, is it, I mean, would, would you have preferred that they did one of the covers like shake, rattle and roll, or you really got a hold on me? I I kind of would have liked them to end with Love Me Do. I think it would have... Because I like bookends. I love the fact that the opening shot of Toy Story 1 is the clouds and the closing shot of Toy Story 4 are the same clouds. I love that shit. There's nothing better than a setup and a payoff. Chekhov's gun, you know, all that crap. But in Beatles Rock Band, they change history. You get I Me Mine on the roof... And you also get a song from Abbey Road. According to the Beatles rock band, they played I Want You, She's So Heavy on the rooftop. It's like, what? I I believe that it was teased on the rooftop, but it was, of course, not performed in its entirety. So I think that's... Was it even fully written by that point, though? It wasn't fully written. I... So... If I remember correctly, She's So Heavy was written as a separate song than I Want You. And I Want You was in the works. And you can hear just a few weeks after the rooftop, you know, some of those initial run-throughs of that with Billy Preston. But, yeah, I I think it was just like a little bit of of the riff. I don't think it was anything crazy. Oh, if it had ended with the... Thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves, and I hope we pass the audition. <laughs> it would have been a bit of a <sighs> If only. 
Last question before we move on to the Peter Jackson film. Do you think the Beatles actually knew that no one could fucking see them from the angle and the height of the building that they were at? There is no way anyone would have known that it wasn't just a speaker on top of the building. There's a part of it that, that thinks that that might have been the appeal for them, that they weren't able to be seen. I, I certainly think that that helped to convince George. <laughs> I, I, think, <laughs> I think he really got it. I, I think they kind of got it both ways there. They got the show that Paul really wanted to do and no one had to see George just like he wanted. Really the ultimate compromise when you think about it. You know what? I've just thought of a really important question. Who is the Ooh. best dressed on the rooftop? Oh, George. Those pants? Are you kidding The, the, the green pants, yeah! Oh. oh, come on. It's George. Ringo looks great too, though. They that, all look they, great. Oh. I love John's jacket. Paul's beard and that blazer yeah. and red weird plastic coat. Oh. Like George, George number one, all the others tied for second. Like I know sometimes things are iconic because they're iconic and successful, but sometimes things are iconic because they're good and <laughs> all, all of them look fabulous. They look fab fabulous on that roof. And and all of them sound fabulous, and that's why it's iconic. It looks and sounds great. And for however much you may enjoy or not enjoy the rest of this movie, you cannot argue that the rooftop is just fantastic. Awful ending, though. It just cuts to, like, a still image, like it's some sort of Saturday Night Live oh, movie. <laughs> it's it's um, terrible. Yeah. What, what is this? Spies like us? Like, oh, God. But yeah, you know what, Dylan? Despite the fact that we've managed to wrap up the entire last 40 minutes of the movie in about five minutes, uh, it is time for us to get out our crystal balls, our magic eight balls, our speed balls, and our regular ball balls, and we're going to put them to good use because we're going to move on to The Beatles' <laughs> Get Back, the upcoming feature-length documentary from Peter Jackson. Oh, yeah. Than today, and if I needed anybody's help in any, but now the years have gone on so for sure. <laughs> now I find a game of mine. Dylan, has this film been delayed since we started recording? Since we started recording. Because it seems to be delayed every uh, day that I've list that I've I, che- checked up on it. I mean, I haven't gotten any Google alerts on my phone. Um, so, to my it's, knowledge, it's no. It's 2020. But... Yeah. Okay. We should we should be good. We should be. Good. <laughs> because look, look, I didn't much about this, but. Originally, September 4th was the day after my birthday, and I was so looking forward to that. I don't think there's ever been anything that's happened in the world that's been more tragic than that, if I'm honest. 
Uh, yeah, you uh, you Virgos just don't get any of the luck, do you? No, but like, this COVID has messed up so many of my favourite movies. Jurassic World 3 has been postponed. Uh, there have been several terrible Marvel movies that I've not been able to take the piss out of. You know, it's it, it's all over the place. It, it really is. But a serious film question. Are you a fan of Peter Jackson? Ever are you aware of his work? Sam, I'm going to make a stunning admission on this podcast. You, you don't like Lord of the Rings, do you? I have seen the first hour of Fellowship, and that is the extent of the films that I have seen. I have seen bits and pieces of the World War documentary, which is fantastic and gives me hope for this project. As far as Lord of the Rings, I just missed the boat. So I... When did the first movie come out? Oh, one. So yeah. I was I was ten years old when those started coming out, and it just kind of went by me. I will say I am much more of a sci-fi person than I am a fantasy person, but I'm sure that I would like the Lord of the Rings if I dug into it. But it's it's just it's high up there on my list of films that I know I should see that I just haven't. But I know of his talents i respect his talents again just seeing the world war documentary really hammered that home for me mm-hmm. uh, but that is that is my stunning admission and i know that i'm a bad millennial for that folks just so you know lord of the rings is the greatest trilogy of all time followed by the dawn of the dead trilogy followed by the toy story trilogy followed by the before midnight before sunset trilogy my God. Are we just completely forgetting about the original Star Wars trilogy? Return of you know the what? Jedi isn't very good. I'm going right, to say it right. Should, now. Let's let's get this back on track because we are going to just have to agree to disagree. No, no, no dude, dude, dude. The first 40 minutes of Return of the Jedi is the best Star Wars movie. But if you can look me in the microphone and say... <sighs> That Harrison Ford has something to do in the last hour of that movie, then you're a liar. You re- there's just nothing it, that happens. Like, well, it, again, it's, I, it's Luke's story. I know it's Luke's story, but you know what? I wish David Lynch had directed it, but he was so confused as to what a Wookiee was that he couldn't direct it, unfortunately. Rather interestingly, Dylan, if you watch, well, obviously you haven't, if you watch the making of the documentaries for Lord of the Rings, <laughs> In the bonus features, that total, if you watch all three bonus features on all three movies, it totals like 36 hours or something like that. It's mental uh, how much stuff they give you. And one of the best parts is you see Peter Jackson, happy as a schoolboy. He's at Abbey Road recording the soundtrack with Howard Shaw for the movies. And, you know, coupled with the fact that his last documentary was so british focused and english centric it's so easy to see why the beatles estate chose him to do it if um living in the material world the george harrison documentary hadn't already existed this probably would have been a scorsese project i don't think that's Mm. unfair to say he'd done the stones he'd done dylan it kind of would have made sense if he'd done the iconic beatles doc as well but he clearly loved george Moore. And living in the material world, I'm probably, even though this is the Paul McCartney podcast, going to give that an individual review one day because that's the only Beatles film I've seen in the cinemas so far. And 
I can watch that with the same casual joy that I can watch The Wizard of Oz or Jurassic Park or Jaws. You know, like I love that movie so much, and it makes me cry within 30 seconds every time. You know, when you hear that guy go, look, George, just just go, be free, you know? Like, oh, my God! I can't help, I can't help myself. Do you think Jackson was given a brief to make this happy, or do you think that's naturally where he was going to go? Well, I wouldn't be surprised if he was given somewhat of a directive to focus on certain positive aspects. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that people... Some people seemed to be upset that the White Album reissue that came out two years ago chose to focus on some of the more positive aspects. Oh, my God. Giles, don't lie. Giles, we know they weren't that happy. Stop making out that they all playing Martha, my dear, and obla dee obla da. Come on, Giles. We know you're a company. Well, I think the issue with all of this is that it rarely ever is that black and white, but it, it's in the narrative that has existed for God knows how many years mm. has been that the Beatles were basically breaking up during the White Album. It's basically four individual solo albums. They were never in the same room. And that's just not true. It's true to some extent, but it is not fully true. There were a lot of instances during the making of that record where they were happy to be together and they were making a lot of great music and having fun together. And it's the same exact thing with this. That being said, does that make the overall experience a good or a positive one? Not necessarily. And I would certainly hope that he wasn't given the directive of like, okay, Peter, make sure that you reframe (laughs) this as a great, brilliant time where everyone was just eating toast and crackers and having a wonderful time sipping on their tea. You know, that's, I hope he wasn't given that directive because I think that would be unfair. I think that would be untrue. Mm-hmm. Um, but if he's given that directive, you know, hey, make sure that you put some good stuff in here. Make sure you show the good times. Make sure that you show George laughing a few times. <laughs> if he does, yeah. I, 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 if he does that, I hope that he does it just in a way that's more accurate. Because you can incorporate all of those things while you're still achieving a historically accurate picture. So, I don't know. What do you think about it? Well, look, this is the big controversy, isn't it? This is revisionist history. You know, people are acting like this is some sort of Holocaust denial or something. Like, folks, calm down. Like, P. Jackson's not going to whitewash history. I think we've got confirmation that they are not going to release this on dvd without the original documentary also being available which yes, is absolutely unprecedented previously <laughs> like i think jeff emmerich's just got turning you know what what i wasn't allowed to be to, to be released and <laughs> you know i think already dylan you and me have in part maybe with a little help from something about the beatles have proven that these sessions weren't all that bad to begin with there are lots of highlights it's like real life there are ups and downs and peaks and troughs and it's all gray and it's all complicated and it's all far too much for regular joe schmo to absorb in a 90 minute documentary it really should be the next tiger king if everyone cared about the beatles still you know like this 10 par 
10-hour documentary. Oh, wait, they did that. It was called The Anthology. But that was all <laughs> kind of a layer of whitewashing as well. And yeah. I reckon in another 25 years, Anthology 2 might come out and it could have even more nuance and stuff like that. But as a man with a passion for history, I can't help but draw con- you know comparisons between this documentary and Stalinist Russia. You know, victors write the history. And who's alive? Paul. And what does Paul want everyone to believe? That everything was nice and happy. Like, this is a Paul McCartney podcast, but like Lester Freeman in The Wire, I'm following the money. I'm following the money. And the money goes all the way back to, no one's going to want to buy a negative documentary. Yes, a negative documentary, like a negative Jeffrey Giuliano book, will make more money in the short term. But a positive film, you know, is going to get replayed on TV it's going to get continual DVD sales and get pushed in that way. You, could you imagine, like, the guy who has to market the old Let It Be movie is like being a propagandist after we all realise that human life is inherently valuable. I don't know how you do that job, you know. Sure. it's. I understand why they're making it. I'm very cynical. I really am. But I don't blame them. Well, I think that you're putting too much emphasis on positive and negative. I think what matters is honesty. And, you know, I know that we obviously don't always get that um, from the top uh, most of the time. But positivity, negativity, those things both coexist. And so that's what I want, you know. I, I I hate to be another voice in the echo chamber, but in terms of what I want out of this documentary, I want more. I want mm-hmm. more footage. I want more context. I want more of a complete story. What interests me the most is that, you know, they know people have access to these Nagra reels. They know that if they choose to skimp on something or whitewash something or not include something, there will be some form of backlash in the community. And while maybe they don't always think about the niche market, they're thinking about the market in general, the quote-unquote niche market or just the the greater Beatles fandom community in general is so much bigger than that of a lot of other quote-unquote niche markets. Yes. You, know, they, yes. you know, they've already seen it with some of the reissues for, for however amazing they are. There's Did anyone think Red Rose Speedway was ever going to get a reissue? <laughs> well, no, but but even with that, you know, something like Red Rose Speedway, there is a backlash of people. Hey, how come we don't have the version of Night Out with lyrics? <gasps> oh, Dylan, I love you. I love you so much. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> oh, you so but And it's the same with this, with these Beatles reissues. There's people that are wondering, hey, Where's our 27-minute Helter Skelter? How come we don't have... <laughs> where's Revolution Take origi- 20? Yes! Where's Take 20? Where's Where's the original version of something with John's Piano Coda? So I understand they probably don't want to include anything that dives deep into John's heroin addiction or the social commentary in songs like No Pakistanis or Commonwealth. But I would love if they had the balls to do it because to quote mr lennon all i want is the truth 
You know, it's been 50 years that so many casual fans have had the skewed view of what these sessions were like. So let's put a more complete version out there that doesn't skimp, that doesn't whitewash. Give us the good, give us the bad, everything in between. Don't worry about what's positive or what's negative. Worry about what's true. I think that's what all of us want, or that's what most people want, I assume, in our community. I guess, like, part of my cynicism boils down to, A, from my own personal opinion, negative kind of equals truth because that's what they try and hide and bury that's my own sure. personal opinion that is not what i consider to be objective reality and secondly there's an air of fear of cancel culture that i perceive to be surrounding this mm. you know they don't want anything that's going to make waves within any area of society and i get that obviously we're not going to hear paul call yoko a I'm going to beat that yeah. up. We're, we're really. not going to hear, um, and we're especially not with everything going on right now, we're not going to hear the white power, the no Pakistanis, even though if they bothered to, again, include the context, it's, oh, this is not racist. This is literally making fun of the racist viewpoints that are being expressed by Enoch Powell and, and all these other people. Well, but, Dylan, but you know what? Let's just talk about what I want to see. I want to see... Uh, more Yoko. I want to mm -hmm. see John's heroin addiction addressed. I want to see the fact that Abbey Road can now be addressed with 2020 hindsight. You know, I want to see me and Mr. Mustard during these sessions and yeah. Polythene Pam. Let's see that. Let's get context for Billy Preston. Who the fuck is this guy? Why is he here? <laughs> Why does he need to be here? Bring up Eric Clapton and how it's kind of a, a repeat of that. George knows that bringing in these guys makes everyone behave a little bit better. Obviously, Lindsay Hogg has stated quite clearly that the cameras were not rolling when George left the band. But as Mark Lewison in his fabulous Hornsey Road touring uh, show pointed out, the microphones were rolling when George left the band. And we hear John say, oh, let's just get Eric Clapton in the band, you know. I want to hear that. And, you know, obviously there is 10,000 hours of Nagra Real stuff to go through. I'm probably not going to hear the 1969 version of Please Please Me. That sounds like ass, even though I'd pay an extra fiver to see that or $10 for you. Sure. Like, like you say, I don't want to set my conclusion up now, but just more. That is the, yeah. the, the short answer, isn't it? More, more, more. I just want more of it. We're so greedy. <laughs> Do you think this sets a kind of bad precedent for historical documentaries, though? Like, are we going to get a version of Grizzly Man where Timothy Treadwell and the grizzly bear ride off in, in, into the sunset? You know? Uh, I think it only sets a bad precedent if that's the direction they choose to go with it. If if they do go the full whitewashing way, which I I don't know. I I understand why that fear still exists, especially with Paul still alive and Paul still having, yeah. uh, you know, somewhat of a say in what's coming out. But I think we should only be worrying about that precedence being set if that's what we get. I think we need to, unfortunately, just wait and see, which we as humans are not always the best at doing. Um, but I, you know what? I, I am hesitantly 
optimistic or cautiously optimistic that we will get probably not everything we want. It's impossible for us to get everything we want, but I'm cautiously optimistic that it will be better. It will be a little more honest, a little more complete, if not fully honest and not Mm -hmm. fully complete. And I mean, I think that Peter Jackson has set an example for what we can expect out of him. So in a way, I, I don't know, maybe his fandom would cloud his judgment a little bit, but I would also like to think higher of him as an artist and a filmmaker mm-hmm. that he wouldn't accept the gig if his full um, direction was to just make him look good. I think that he wouldn't say yes to that if it meant being completely dishonest. Conversely, Peter Jackson's also the guy who directed Brain Dead or Dead Alive as it was released (laughs) in the US. That was a long time ago, Sam. Yeah, well, I think to this day, it's still the movie that has the world record for most blood pumped on screen during any scene in any film ever. Also, it's a scene where a giant rat monster ogred mother forces her son back into her own womb. So, yeah, I'm 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 expecting some some shocker moments, not like controversially shocking, but oh wow, he's included this. I trust Jackson to to know what to look, look Jackson's the guy who managed to turn 3 4-hour movies into 3 2-hour movies. This is a guy who knows how editing works and how he you know, he knows what people want to see. People didn't want to see a exact adaptation of Lord of the Rings. They want to see a Hollywood movie version. And he's going to be able to, as far as I'm concerned, delineate between what's going in and what's not going in, but not arbitrarily, but for the right reasons. If he's not going to include something, I'm fully prepared to see him in Mojo and Enemy defend it vehemently and... He, this is going to be positively received. I think it is. Regardless of my own cynicism, I think he's going to nail it. I really do. Sure. Well, to that point you just made, do you think there is a possibility that we see a two-hour theatrical version and a three-and-a-half or four-hour director's cut? And maybe the theatrical version maybe briefly touches upon... John's drug use or maybe not at all but then they go more into it you know maybe some of the more salacious or yeah you know what like a PG theatrical cut and a 12A DVD cut because he actually did that with the the Hobbit part 3 the theatrical cut was PG but the um, director's cut was 12 so I reckon he might do something like that that is you know what the very prospect I'm quite aroused at that already, so we shouldn't dwell on it on it on it too much. Uh, Mr. Jackson, if you and the Widow Workshop and uh, Philippa Boyd and friend Marsh, your co-writers, are listening, please do an extended cut. Please, 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 please. I think you have set a record on this show for most impressions ever done on one approximately two, two and a half hour podcast. Um... Not good impressions, but I will take that Guinness Book well, title. There's definitely. a reason. There's a reason that I uh, didn't express that. <laughs> Honestly, folks, if I'm ever 
you know, thinking about leaving this podcast or stop podcasting altogether, I will release one podcast of raw audio where it's me going, Paul McCartney, Paul McCartney, Paul McCartney, Paul McCartney, and me trying to get the fucking impression just right. It always reminds me of that that bit where Marge's like, I need my good nagging voice, Homer. No, that's not it. Homer, that's the one. That's how I get these impressions done. It's all very orchestrated, folks. But moving on, Dylan, let's try and summarise this because you've only got another 42 minutes. Uh, (laughs) And I've kept you for much longer than I thought I was. But as Ken Michaels will attest, I always end up keeping everyone for much longer than I say I will. Uh, (laughs) That's the name of the game, folks. Dylan, any, uh, any final comments on Let It Be and The Beatles Get Back? I would say... Final comments. Watching back, I I watched the film a few days ago and I watched it one more time this morning. I have really not changed my opinion on this film very much Mm -hmm. over the years. And I feel like I'm really glad it will be reissued with the new Mm -hmm. Get Back film because... For all of the faults that we just talked about, for the lack of a narrative, for the lack of context, you cannot erase 50 years worth of history. And and part of this history that we're talking about today is what the overall mindset has been of the fan base. And, you know, 50 years from now, when people are asking, hey, how come, you know— people thought this about this or, or why, why did people, you know, just assume this and this and this, it needs to be put out there. It needs to be available so people can understand, you know, this documentary is why we have 50 years worth of certain opinions and viewpoints on Paul McCartney, on Yoko Ono, on the end of the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And, Regardless of how flawed it is and regardless of how, quote unquote, wrong any of those mindsets or agendas might have been, it would be wrong to erase that. And so for that, I am glad that that's happening. I think it's an interesting film. I think it's a completely different conversation, whether I think it's a good thing that the film came out. But Mm -hmm. I can't change that and I can't change what happened. I mean, this film came out. 21 years before I was born, you know, Mm. like I have such little say uh, in how it affects, you know, the way that people think about the Beatles or any of these individual people. But as it stands, since it came out and I can't change that, I think it is fascinating from, you know, especially in hindsight. And I'm Mm. really excited to see what they come out with. I, Like Mm -hmm. I said, I am cautiously optimistic, and here's hoping that all of our worst fears don't come true, and it is all of them finishing that last song on the roof and joining hands and jumping up and making a still on them jumping up on the air while the sun rises in the background with the end. You know, let's—I don't think that'll happen, but here's hoping. You're cautiously optimistic. I'm optimistically cautious. And what a way to end the show. And now that we're at the end of the episode, dude, 
this is the time that I always get excited for because I never know what the answer is going to be. Are you currently working on anything? Is there anything you'd like to plug? I do remember when I was asking you, uh, you know, certain questions that I might interview you about. You were like, oh, might not ask me about that, Sam. I'm currently working on something. What's percolating in the background, Dylan? (laughs) It is something that I'm not even halfway done with yet, so I'm extremely hesitant to announce anything or say anything. Mm-hmm. But I am working on a Beatles-related project that I am extremely excited about. I am hoping that I will have it finished within the next year. And I think whenever it's done, it will create some conversation within members of the community that choose to read it. And I am I'm really, really excited for it. But I can't say what it is yet, and I'm so, so sorry to put you in that position. Can you tell me off-air, like legit? Can you tell me off-air? I will tell you off-air. Yes! And, and you will you will be <laughs> one of about four people who know. Oh, no, see, this is going to be one of the things, like, if it does get out, you'll be like, I know it was you, Sam. I only told you. <laughs> I know it was you. Dylan... We met for the first time properly on Two Legs just just a couple of weeks ago, and I'm not going to lie, I'm so glad I got you on this show as soon as possible. It was going to be originally something much more protracted and drawn out that I would have to research a lot longer on, but you know what? I was like, let's just do Let It Be. Let's just get this out of the way. Every podcast has done a Let It Be and a Get Back episode leading up to this release, and with the delay, this is perfect for us to do this. I'm so glad I've had you on. I definitely want to have you back on even before your next Beatles project. We're going to talk about something much sooner than that. Let me just say, thank you for coming on the show, dude. It's been a real treat. I cannot wait to have you back on as soon as possible because you are just as irreverent and disrespectful. And yet, yet, you are a lot more insightful than me and you're much more measured. Uh, You balance me out quite well with my kind of radical bollocks. So thank you so much for coming on, dude. Man, I really can't thank you enough for having me on. Uh, I have really nothing on my resume aside from the fact that I did the music for Two Legs and, and have had the opportunity to be on a few shows with them and other than that, there's absolutely no reason why any of your listeners or any people in the Beatles community would have any idea who I am. But I, I appreciate you throwing that all into the wind and having me on. And I hope I, I hope I pass the audition. And uh, <laughs> I <laughs> thanks, Mole. And I, I, I can't wait to come back on. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I, I love everything that you do and uh, it, it truly means a lot to me that you had me be a part of this there we are folks that was me and dylan cv we've just discussed let it be we've just discussed the beatles get back if you want to get back in contact with the show if you want to hit me up want to hit dylan up links down below thank you all for listening folks see you very soon dylan again thank you so much we'll see you soon my friend take care yep you too sam